Hi, I'm Alexis Alexander, and this is The Off-Duty Diplomat, a podcast about the 10 years I worked for the U.S. Department of State. Welcome to a retrospective of season one of the Off-Duty Diplomat podcast. I know we're already in season two of the podcast, but I wanted to take the time and reflect on season one. Fallon and I will also be answering questions from you, the listeners. And just a reminder that if you do have any questions or comments following an episode, you can send those to offdutydiplomat at gmail.com and we will be glad to answer them. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Off Duty Diplomat. We are looking back at season one, which focused on my tour as a visa adjudicator at the consulate in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. This is Alexis. I am here with Fallon. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) I think one thing I always forget to say in these episodes and that I realize I need to probably say up front is we really appreciate you listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star review on uh, whatever platform you're listening on. That really helps people find the podcast and we greatly appreciate it. Also, if you would like to support the podcast further, feel free to buy the merchandise from our site on TeePublic. And also you can subscribe to our Patreon for additional bonus content and episodes. All of the links to those are in the biographical information on whatever platform you're listening. So thought I would throw that up front this time because I always listen back and I'm like, I should have just said something. And so this time we are. In the beginning. Um, in the beginning. Yeah. And we're only accepting five-star reviews. Yeah. <laughs> just I will say that again. We are only accepting five-star reviews, please, and things. Also, there's a cute little Instagram account where, you know, we post things. Not me, Alexis. But you can things. tell it's me because <laughs> it's <see>. very understated. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm going to look for some ways to jazz it up a little bit. So look out for that coming your way in 2024. So we finished season one, I think back in like Yar. October. And we just like kind of let it end and... I, for one, really enjoyed making it and listening to it, but I got some great follow-up questions from you all, the listeners, afterward, and I thought it would be cool to take a look back at that season, respond to some of those questions, and just kind of have a discussion about how season one went. Found anything to add before we jump yeah, in? because I'm always down to chat. Our very first question to address is, what was our favorite episode from season one? Fallon, I'm going to let you answer this first because I've been talking for a while. What was your favorite episode from season one? Well, I went back and I have it pulled up on the Spotify. Yeah, to visa or not to visa. That was my favorite one Um, for a lot of reasons. Obviously, it stars me and features me. <laughs> Clearly. No, that's that's not it. But no, I um I enjoyed it because I feel like I feel like we hit our stride storytelling wise. I know selfishly audio wise, it was very well mixed. Mm. I liked it because it just kind of put me and hopefully our listeners kind of in your shoes as close as we possibly could put them. The type of stories I like to listen to. And I think that the stuff that most resonates with me is that kind of like I'm in it with you fly on the wall type stuff. So, yeah, I feel like we hit a crescendo storytelling wise. It was well produced and it grounded that experience in reality in ways that I enjoy as a listener and a storyteller. What about you? What a thoughtful answer, Fallon. Lovely. What was my favorite episode? (laughs) Honestly, well, you said episode five um, and I think that's legit, but I really just have 
a soft spot in my heart for our wrap-up episode, so I'm going to go with Kobayashi Maru being my favorite one from season one. Mostly because- I just listened to that one, by the way. <laughs> really? I did. No, I did. That was the last thing that I did before I got on. Because oh. I was like, I mean, I know the rest of them, but I was like, let me listen to that last one again before we reflect. And it was good. All right, you go. I just, I'm such a, I just love having those kinds of conversations with other people. And I guess then getting to do it on the mic is really fun for me and really interesting and cathartic in some ways. So yes, I would say episode seven was probably my favorite one, but... Would you like to guess which episode from season one was the most popular with our listeners? Watch it be the You Moving episode. <laughs> uh, Alexis it was not that Mexico. episode. Watch, is that it? It is So You Want to Be a Diplomat. <laughs> episode Good. one of season one is the most popular episode by far with our listeners. That makes sense, though. It's the, it? again, if you, depending on what platform you're listening on, yeah, my user experience brain is coming in. This is how you find us. When you're sharing the podcast, when you're looking at it, when you go to the website or, you know, I think for a while, probably that first episode is kind of like that thing. Also, it's only a 30 minutes. It's a quick listen and investment. If you don't like it, you're not going to keep listening. Okay. You kind of <laughs> almost touched on it, but what was your least favorite episode from season one? Um, sorry to anybody who enjoys the nuts and bolts episodes, but, um, the, the, the minutia, the moving, <laughs> the moving what parts? Well, but okay. The reason why I didn't like that one though, and this is just, you know, me shadow boxing sandwich foul. I couldn't get that audio to do what I wanted it to do. And so I'm frustrated at my own lack of ability to heal very nasty audio. <laughs> That's my biggest gripe is the audio. The sound quality is not where it is now and yeah. that the level that I like it to be before it goes live. I hear that. I respect it. That's it my does gripe. make complete sense because I know you. I will say I also don't love the logistics episodes. They're not that interesting to me because I, I always think, oh, no one's going to want to hear about like, you know, how I packed or whether or not we had sheets at the new place or, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, oh, no one cares. But we actually do get a really strong stuff. response. Yeah, we do get a really strong response from people on the logistics stuff. And I, I'm always like surprised by that. So I'm with you. See, episode two is probably also my least favorite one because I'm just like, oh, this is so boring. Who cares? But people care. People like the logistics episodes. So there we go. Who was uh, okay. the, what, who like their people? What was the least favorite with the listeners? Do you have it up? Least favorite from now season two with the listeners. The least listened to, to episode the from season one was episode seven, Kobayashi Maru. The last one? The last one. Oh. But I think it's because people want to go in order. Dang. And so if you stall out around episode three or four, you're just like, oh, I can't just skip ahead to seven. Even though you could, you guys, they're not chronological, these episodes. You could. Right. They're special snowflakes. You can pop in and pop out. I mean, there is a narrative arc if you listen with your ears and your brain, but it's not required. That's just like mm -hmm. extra credit. Yeah, exactly. And I think <laughs> this is maybe something we like haven't clarified with people before, but they are all put together as self-contained mm -hmm. episodes. So you could listen to two of them for one season. You could listen to all seven. You could listen out of order or in order. And I don't think you miss anything not going like sequentially. And actually, maybe we should have clarified that to people because I, I guess maybe they assume that you would miss out if you didn't listen to like a previous thing. Like maybe you go back, but 
There's no, there's like I no mean, problem there's with some listening out of order. But you can always listen right, there to are that some callbacks. Later. So like you might, right, like you might miss a joke here or there, but we do, we love a good callback, but it's not material. Like you won't lose the plot completely if you bop around. Man, I hadn't even hmm. thought of that before we had this conversation. That's why I like doing these convos, man. Now I'm like, you know what? Yeah, we should have clarified. Well, now since I'm on the mic about it, uh, I'm just going to let y'all know that the Israel Explainer episodes also do not need to be listened to sequentially. Now, those ones I think you will get more sure out don't. of if you listen one, two, and three. But you can easily just listen to the third yeah. one or just listen to the second one and not miss anything terribly significant, I would argue. That's Question cool. three, what has it felt like reliving these stories? Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely a you question <laughs> as it felt like um it's been hard hmm. some of it it's been really fun some of it getting to talk to like heather getting to talk to michael people who i used to work with very closely that's been really wonderful but there are definitely some difficult moments difficult things to recall and to dive into that I kind of hadn't thought about in a really long time. But I also, I, I'd say I've, I've really enjoyed it as well, sort of getting to externalize that story from my own self and my own memory, because now my recollections kind of live in the ether rather than just rattling around inside my brain. And as a person who mm. shoves a lot of knowledge into myself almost compulsively, it's nice to have a backup storage system for the information. <laughs> it's in the cloud now. It is in the cloud now. That's literally true. Um, actually, and then I think, because I'd like to hear your take on this, Fallon. What has your experience been working on what? this project, working on season one? It's kind of aligned with a lot of stuff that I've been doing for a long time. I've been telling stories for brands and of people, like back when I was doing the disability advocacy stuff. Every case, every file was a story that I had to tell to a judge or somebody else to get this person some money. So I think it's different, but then it's also unique. I mean, sorry, it's the same, but it's also different. That's what I meant to say. <clears throat> because this is the first time that I am helping a friend tell a personal story <laughs> for no money. <laughs> so it's I'm doing it because I want to. And that's the main motivator. I'm doing it because I believe in it. And it kind of just helped me remember why I got into this line of work, This why I invest so much time in this type of stuff, because I really genuinely enjoy it. And given that I was laid off right before we started this, it's been a really good thing to do with my time. <laughs> well, I love to hear that. That's so, it's good to hear, you know, that it's been useful for you. <laughs> I'm going to say this pretty consistently so y'all really understand. I don't do a lot of the the prep stuff. For the first time in one of any of these projects, I'm not like super, super heavy handed on the prep stuff. I'm just making sure it sounds good and it is perfect as it can be before the train leaves the station. So like when I come on this mic, I'm like, look, I'm kind of freestyling, which always makes me nervous. But I didn't know any of this stuff before I started talking to you. I didn't. I had no reason to know any of this stuff. And now I know a lot. <laughs> so. We have we have done a lot of episoding and a lot of conversating in between the episodes. So I completely agree with you because there's so many times you and I will record an episode and then we'll have a conversation right after where I'm like, oh man, we took that to a whole nother level. We went even beyond the thing that we were just discussing. 
I'm going to pivot into another listener question. And this it also came in Go. through the email. And the question is, were you aware of your implicit biases and how did you gain this awareness and how did you address it when performing your duty? So actually, I think we could both answer the first two. And I, I kind of like I like that because I feel like implicit bias was a big topic for season one. Uh, do you want to answer this one first or I can? Uh, you go. I just finished talking about this. <laughs> okay. Was I aware of my implicit biases? I think like all of us, there are some biases I know that I hold at least loosely on a conscious level. And I think there were the biases that really caught me off guard after I'd been doing the work a little bit. And I will say mm. this is one kind of a cool thing about, you know, doing the consular work is you might see someone just in front of you and, and make all of these assumptions about them in your mind based on very basic information. And then through the course of, you know, the interview, reviewing the documents, and of course, like the background checks that are pulled up in the in the process, you, you realize, oh, wow, I had that right on or, oh, I was very wrong about that. And I think I often irritate people in my life now because I'm very much, I really try hard not to devil's advocate because I hate that. It's hard for me to commit to a judgment of a person or a situation if I'm not directly involved. And because I'm just, I'm very comfortable now with the idea that I'm never going to know everything and I'm never going to have all the information about another human being. So <laughs> I think I was decently aware that, wow, I, I don't have a bias against poor people. And that's really something that is structurally encouraged by the United States visa system. And I think that was the one that kept coming up for me over and over again. I'm like, I don't I don't understand why we're using money as a shorthand for honesty or ability to fulfill the requirements that we've set forth here. It really didn't occur to me that that should be relevant. And I think that's where the most friction was for me in doing that job over and over again, because that bias against poor people, you know, people in a low SES category is really built in and it is not a bias that I hold. How did I address it when performing mm. my duties? <laughs> I used my discretion as much as possible when I was making a decision. And I always tried to make a decision that I could feel good about in terms of my own values and also that was in accordance with the law. Obviously, it didn't work all the time. And you just kind of do your best and give yourself grace when you know you've fallen short and come back and try again the next day. How about you, Fallon? Mm. Well, I mean, I can only really talk about it in the context of doing this podcast, yeah. not necessarily doing my job job. So I can probably only address... Was I aware of my implicit biases? Yeah, I was. And I gained that awareness. Well, first of all, my lived experience, I get to see versions of people that they don't necessarily know are, are visible because of how I navigate the world. So I have some lived experience to lean on. I've studied critical race theory, the boogeyman in <laughs> our education system. So yeah, no, I was fairly aware. And because of the thing I just said before, how I come on the mic and I do my damnedest to be authentic and I don't always tend to know what Alexis is going to throw at me next. <laughs> Y'all heard me process a lot of this stuff real time. And you will continue to because that's how I want to do this. And that's how we're going to do it until I change my mind. In some ways you can't really prep. Like, you know, even when we went through training, you learned a no, lot I of can't. little practice cases, but then there's a human yeah, being in front of you and you just got to make a decision, which I think is one yeah. of the benefits. Mm -hmm. You know, if you haven't That's listened scale. to episode five, to visa or not to visa, you get to hear Felon work through adjudicating in real time some mock cases that I provide for her based on the information we've discussed. And uh, she does really work through 
some potential biases in real time in ways that I also saw my colleagues do when we were on the line and that I did myself. Let's see here. Fallon, are there any questions? Hmm. You go ahead and ask one. You ask one because I've been asking them. Is there anything that you didn't say about Mexico that you want to say now? Oh, you know, what's funny is I already know because we've been recording this podcast for a minute that whatever I say on here in an hour, I'm going to be like, you should have said this too. So you know what? I'm going to say what I'm going to say. And then I'm just going to know that I'm going to want to add on to it. Mexico (laughs) was an absolutely incredible time. I, I just have nothing bad to say about the people, the culture, living there, even with the difficult security circumstances. I think anyone who gets to spend time in Mexico and get close to that culture and the people and everything it involves is a very fortunate human being. And I count myself really lucky that I got to do Mexico as one of my assignments, even though maybe for some people it's less exotic than, I don't know, when I was in Afghanistan. But um, I really enjoyed my time there. I have so much respect for the people that I worked with and just the people I met out and about. People I met were lovely and kind and thoughtful and just so welcoming and open, even though (laughs) we as Americans, we as American diplomats are sometimes very rude and very brusque and very entitled and just can be really, I think we make ourselves difficult to love in many ways. And I just- Not difficult. (laughs) Yeah, really difficult to embrace. And and I just, I encountered nothing but openness and professionalism and kindness and just warmth my entire time there. So I really enjoyed it. And I know that sort of the security aspect is sort of what makes it seem sensational. But yeah, Yeah. I, I just wanted to be super clear that it was a very positive experience for me on the whole. If I can take away sort of the existential angst of mm-hmm. making like, you know, significant decisions on behalf of strangers every day. My time in Mexico was phenomenal. I did two different tequila tours when I was in Jalisco, when I was in Guadalajara at that consulate doing work, um, getting to see the pyramids of Teotihuacan and Chichen Itza was incredible. Just getting to experience life in Mexico City and Monterrey and Uh, Merida and getting to see some parts of Mexico that are maybe off the beaten path was it was just like a rich such a rich opportunity for personal expansion and growth and I'm very grateful Mm. yay (laughs) I'm also thinking about when we do this after season two and I'm wondering how you're going to respond to that question (laughs) I'm already thinking ahead you know me (laughs) I also wonder. And I just wanted to be clear because I think that this Mexico episode maybe it's, it's got it got a little bit less personal treatment than I think season two did. Because in season yeah. two, I came, yeah. I just had much more contact with Israel, period, professionally than I had in Mexico. In Mexico, I was really stuck behind that window day after day. So there just wasn't as much opportunity yeah. to touch into the the culture and the life of it as much. But when I did get those opportunities, they were incredibly positive. I got to. Y'all, I sent Diego Luna a bottle of tequila at a restaurant in Guadalajara with my friends, and it was amazing. The other thing I'm thinking as I'm listening to you in comparison to, you know, the stuff that we're talking about now on season two is that um, you got to experience Mexico kind of as a tourist or as like yourself a little bit more. Like when you did walk away from your job, you were able to kind of just be yourself, like not in, not a representative of an entity. Once you got to Israel, because Israel, Israel's the way that it does, and 
of the nature of your job. I think I remember, I don't know why this stuck with me, but it did when you were talking about your apartment in Tel Aviv and how close it was to the beach. And I was like, oh my God, did you go to the beach? And you were like, never. And so I'm comparing and contrasting <laughs> that to all the beautiful things that you got to, you know what I'm saying? Listen to yeah. all the stuff you say you got to do in Mexico. You, what? No, like, cause <sighs> were you even eating out in restaurants? You know what I'm saying? Like, I think- Everything changed on personal and professional level the moment you left Mexico. It did. And and each, honestly, all three tours are such their own encapsulation. You know, if they were, I mean, at this point, yeah. because we're telling the story, they each of them is its own season and they are profoundly different. Mm-hmm. Every single thing is different. And right. that is one thing I really yeah. wanted to capture in this project as a whole, which is, you know, when your circumstances change, to what extent do you change with them? And I think I can confidently say I was a very different Alexis mm. in each of those places. Very different. I think the Alexis you found in Mexico was much more committed to my playtime because I know that we worked so hard. And that was very much the ethos of being at the consulate. It's like, listen, we are all stuck here from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. But as soon as we get out of here, you better believe we are having a poker party. Turn up. We're all going out for tacos at our favorite place. We're all going to go to this club and hang out with, you know, a mm-hmm. bunch of 18 year olds because that's who's at clubs in Juarez. Or we're going to everyone's going oh. to the Hot Air Balloon Festival in Albuquerque. We're all going to go skiing Cloudcroft. We're all going to, you know. Make the most of all of your free time. You maximize that free time. And that is, I think, anathema to some Americans (laughs) because people want to give everything to work. And because it was such an enforced nine to five with no opportunity of doing extra work, everyone was very committed to that play hard energy. And that didn't exist as much for me in Israel because there was no time off. It was work all the but time. But I think so that, like, yeah. as I always say, that was absolutely unique to you, but that kernel thing is also something that's super universal. Like I can reflect back on my career and you walked right into a question I'm going to ask you on the paper. Please Dig hold, it. this is my preamble. I think about like younger me and the nine to fiving that I was doing. And like lately I've been feeling kind of nostalgic for that time. Mm-hmm. Again, we were making no money, but my stress levels, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like I felt like I was able to have more of a balance. And for I, it's in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, you had a great balance. But in the moment, I didn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, But in comparison to what I was doing before, my word. So here's the question. What would you tell your 25-year-old self about the career you're embarking on now? I'm not going to age you, but now. (laughs) Some years later. I think that first phase of my career was about giving my ambition and my intellectual capacity and my own personal energy level full reign in a way that I hadn't been allowed to do when I was a student, you know, know, Mm. regular school, university, graduate school. There's always some constraint, I think, in academia around how much you can actually do and how deep you can really go into the projects that inspire you. And getting into this career, I felt this boundless sense of potential and capacity for what was possible, you know, depending on what I was willing to invest. And that felt so freeing and so exciting. If you're a person who always feels like I have more to give, I can do more. It's exciting when someone's like, well, go ahead then, Um, at least until you burn yourself out, which is what you do when you're a racehorse that's been cooped up too long. And I think the next phase of my career trajectory has been about learning to value myself and learning to Mm. 
You know, it's not enough for someone to say, okay, now you're allowed to create. I deserve to be compensated for that work commensurate with the value that I provide. Yes. And I think when I was in the foreign service, I was so grateful that anyone would just let me do what I could do because I think, you know, and I know this, I'm a woman, I'm a black woman. Um, I did not come from a fluent background or circumstances. And there are, there's always someone out there to tell you, oh, you've done enough. Stop that. Oh, that's above your pay grade. Oh, nobody asked you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to get it wrong. Like you don't know what you're talking about. And and in the foreign service, it was so, it felt so good for people to just be like, well, all right, girl, you do it. Go ahead and do it. We need these five things. Here's the deadline. You Here run are the resources with it. you have. Yeah. Get it done. And that was one reason why I really challenged myself to become such a fast and accurate adjudicator. I ended up being one of, you know, the most accomplished on the line during my time, which is why I got sent on so many temporary assignments to help out other locations. And because I was just like, thank God, you know, I finally have the leash and the rein to really see what I can do. Coming after that Mm -hmm. moment, the next thing is, okay, I deserve to work at my full capacity and make full use of my gifts and abilities. And I also deserve to be compensated for those things adequately. (laughs) It's not enough for someone to just say, all right, show us what you can do. Now they need to tell me, and we are going to value you and your work based on those things. And if I If I look ahead to the next version of that, for me, I'll be very honest with you. I don't know what the next step in that evolution is going to be, but I suspect it will have to do with learning how to support the work of others and also learning how to be better at collaboration and teamwork. Mm. I am, you know, I was a very strong individual contributor Mm. and I think I turned into a very strong manager, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if I'm a very strong collaborator. (laughs) That's maybe something I need to work on. I don't take feedback well. I don't take advice well. You all do not know what a hero Fallon is for collaborating and working on this project with me because I am so recalcitrant and so obstinate (laughs) all the time. The fact that she managed to do it, she's a true Alexis whisperer and I am not easily managed. I've said this to every manager I've ever had. I'm always like, you know, and I I know it probably sounds like a threat, but I'm like, this can go badly or this can go well. And I'm going to hand you the keys to making it go well because I am very difficult to manage. Pro tip, you just got to let her rock. You really do. (laughs) You just have to let her rock. And I'm also patient. I'm patient. He's <laughs> managing Alexis. Don't manage her. But guess what? But hey, he, the gag is the best people to manage are the ones who don't need management. <laughs> like, cause, cause like, I'm going to reverse skip Uno out back to you. You didn't know anything about audio editing, but nope. you were a good student, right? Like you trusted me and my expertise to be like, okay. She knows what she's talking about. So let me listen. And I do really well with people who are like, okay, let me just listen. It's because let me look, I don't like talking. I don't like talking that much. (laughs) I don't like taking up any more space than the space that I need to get my shit out. So yeah, no, you've been really easy to work with for me. So I don't know. I think you might want to reframe that internal narrative. I I appreciate your your validation is a collaborator. (laughs) I would love for this version of me to do more collaboration. Because you worked with me. Yeah. Yeah. We should just go ahead and start that media production company. You know what? Maybe this will be what season three is about. (laughs) Maybe that'll be about my learning to trust other people with our collective vision. Because I think when you're uh, a gifted kid, you get into this like, oh, I'm just going to do all the work for the group. Yeah. Because I want it done right. And I want it done at a certain level. But the nice thing is, as an adult, I found all the other tryhards. And now all the recovering tryhards, because most of us are in our 30s and 40s and we're tired and broken down and trying to <laughs> trying to get ourselves together after running too hard in our 20s. And so I think this season is Ooh. about 
I don't have anything to prove and I do want to be paid. And also I'm just much more confident being like, just let me do it. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Is this show like, this is your, as you were talking, I heard bitch better have my money by Rihanna. So is that your season? Is (laughs) that that, the next one? That certainly was the, (laughs) you know, the season of working in in big Mm -hmm. tech was very much about, Mm -hmm. let me, let me get this money, run me my check and, or we need to renegotiate what I'm providing for this amount of money. Oh my gosh. Is there going to be a, so is that season four? Cause I thought season three is, well, wait, are we going to tell, did we tell them? Do they know? Should we tell them? (laughs) They know season three. Is there going to be a season four? We know about season three. Season four. I'm, I'm open to suggestions. So if you, the listener have things you want to hear about that I didn't dig into, Mm -hmm. I'm happy to do more. We can talk about my time at the UN. We could talk about my time in Zimbabwe when I was an intern. We could talk about my time as a fellow, as a little baby Ooh, junior the prequel. diplomat. Yeah, the prequel. Maybe that season four will be the prequel. Oh my God. Are we doing the Star Wars thing? We're definitely <laughs> doing the Star Wars thing. Oh Lord, look at us. Lord. Well, yeah, <laughs> probably, probably. Uh, there is another question here that is a process question. So I've said this before, I've said this in other episodes. I'm going to say it again here because I think it's... Um, helpful when it comes to like contextualizing the work I did. There are five different areas of service in Mm -hmm. the foreign service and you do get to pick your thing. Yes. You do get to pick. So you can be an economics officer that's dealing with trade agreements. You can be a political officer who's talking to like members of parliament and other politicians in the country about their policies and, you know, human rights and military cooperation and things like that. You can be a consular officer, which is what I was in Juarez, which is doing passports and visas and Consular reports of birth abroad, looking out for Americans when they act foolishly and end up in jail. And then you can be a management officer, which are the ones who look after all of the buildings and the structures and contracts for the way we function overseas. I will say, I think the management officers are probably the most employable after their tour in the foreign service because every single industry has operational needs. And I think doing international operations is probably very impressive. And then the final category, which is the one I was in, which is public diplomacy, which are the people who are in charge of sort of changing hearts and minds uh, among our international partners and audiences. You're talking to regular people, but you also get to do things like sports diplomacy, art diplomacy, music diplomacy, food diplomacy. There are offices for each of these things at the Department of State in D.C. who work on sort of the non-political ties between the international community. And it's it was a really fun thing to get to do and had a lot of scope if you have creative interest and, uh, you know, you're interested in building those programs. So those are the five categories and you do get to pick. You pick as part of your FS entrance process uh, on the very first time that you show up and Take the foreign service exam. They'll ask you what cone you want to be. That's what we call them. We call them cones. And um, you will select then and move forward. Although I do have a little mm. little secret to tell. On my original application, I listed myself as an economics officer. And then when I came on, oh. I switched to public diplomacy on all my paperwork without telling anyone. So technically, I should not have been in public diplomacy. Oh. I, was, I was like, just write down public diplomacy and see if any of them notice. And nobody did, apparently. So I came in as a public diplomacy officer, even though I should have been econ. Well, what made you, 
Why did you pick econ? I picked econ because I, I'll be very honest with you. I thought it sounded very intellectual and I was like, oh, this makes me sound like I'm smart mm-hmm. and I know about money and finance and international economy. And I do know about international economy, uh, but, but I did this internship at the embassy in Zimbabwe before I became an official diplomat. I was an intern there and they put me in the economic office and I mm. worked with a really cool team of people, but it was just really quiet, <laughs> which is so funny. Because I, you could say I probably would have had a much. It wasn't chaotic. It wasn't chaotic at all. It was zero percent chaotic. And econ officers are kind of stereotypically known as the most introverted of all the foreign service categories. They're like the ones who like don't make eye contact with you, and they never say anything, and they're kind of just off doing their own thing very quietly. And they lent me out to the public diplomacy office to do a college fair for potential Mm -hmm. college students who wanted to study in the U.S. And it was so inspiring to get to talk to those kids. They're all so freaking impressive. I think one of the best things that our State Department does is attracting and supporting international students. Because when I tell you those kids are impressive, mm. I'm saying like multiples of them are have patents, you know, before they're 18. They're like award-winning writers. They are, mm-hmm. they're just so freaking brilliant. Uh, and I just, there's something about being around mm. that energy of possibility and hope and excitement that for me, it was very energizing. And I knew after I did that college round, hmm. like, I have to do PD. You guys get to spend time sending kids to Aww. college in America? I'm in. This is it for me, for sure. I think that's a good segue to this other question about families. So, like, what do oh. parents think? Are so they... The, well, like, cool. No, because I'm, I'm... Yeah. Tell me. Tell me, tell me. I'm just going to say, I can tell that this question is from my mom. Hi, mom. Uh, Thanks for sending in this particular question. (laughs) Definitely from my mom. (laughs) So she says here, what do parents think their (laughs) children in the foreign service are doing? Do they approve, try to talk them out of it, pressure them not to go to danger posts, et cetera? And this is highly individual. I mean, this, I probably did a different- Do you even tell them the truth about (laughs) what you do? I did, but you know me. Uh, I think it's really individual. I think it depends on your cultural background. I think it depends on your family structure and the way that you all communicate with each other. If you asked Michael or Carmika or, you know, Lisa, you probably get a different answer or Chuck than the one I'm going to give you. I told I was very clear with my parents about what I was doing. I guess they were probably worried because I think parents just worry. But I, to be perfectly honest with you, I started doing international stuff early pretty early. I mean, I studied abroad in undergrad. Mm -hmm. I lived in Senegal for a semester doing an arts and culture and language program. Senegal's in West Africa. You know, I I did an internship at the UN um, in the Department of Peacekeeping Operations. That was also when I was in undergrad. So I moved to New York for a semester and I did work in that office. And that was my main coursework for that whole time period. And then after that, I did that internship in Zimbabwe. So I feel like by the time I was like officially in the service and I told my parents I was moving to Mexico, I think they were like, oh, good. That's closer, at least. You know, she's not, you know, okay. off in West Africa or South right. Africa, which is really she can far drive away there. From. And I think also, right. I think gender plays a big role. Maybe people don't want to admit that, but it definitely does. I feel like Ooh. I hear way more panic from the parents of female officers than I do from the parents of male officers. I think. When people think of diplomacy, they still think of it as, oh, you know, should be a man in the field. He should be wearing a suit and doing man stuff in a bar with martinis. I just think people have this madman energy about it, whether they want to or not. And diplomacy is very male, I would say, and very male oriented. But so are most industries. Yeah. So I think a lot of the questions I got from people who were close to me when I was going through this process, who were sort of in a parental role, it for them was a lot about like, are you going to be safe? Are you going to be okay? 
And I'm like, well, am I going to be safe or okay in LA? We don't know. We wrong place, wrong time anywhere. <laughs> True that. Truly. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, it's not like I just bounced up in Afghanistan on my own and I was like, I'm going to build, you know, cultural programs. Like, no, I went with the full weight of the U.S. government behind me. The one time I left the base in Afghanistan and we went up to Panjshir, it was a 30 person movement for me and two other diplomats. We were the only three diplomats of that group of 30. Everyone else was medical, uh, engineering, or security personnel to protect us. Yeah. Yeah, no, that mm, I can't wait till we start talking about that. There's but that does no definitely sound way. like a mom question. Also, thank yeah. you for listening. <laughs> yeah, thank you for listening for sure. But there is Thanks. almost no safer way to see the world. Um, I think also parents maybe don't understand a ton of what their kids are doing in the foreign service if they're not really aware of international stuff. So for example, when the embassy moved in Jerusalem, all of us were kind of like, our heads were blowing up because of the foreign, like, foreign policy implications of making that decision. The implications. And I feel like I, I went yeah. home and I talked to family about it and people were like, oh, okay. And I'd be like, no, it's not okay, guys. This is crazy. Cool. <laughs> and so, yeah. It's but I think just- that's also true for most. Your average parent these days doesn't really, if they are a parent of a millennial or younger, have no idea what we do for work. <laughs> I feel like if we were to call my grandma on three-way right now and ask her to tell the people who are listening what she thinks I do for work back when I was working or even that I know how to do well for money, <laughs> she would struggle. <laughs> I, I think I, the you're same is true right. for my actual mother, my aunts. <laughs> Like, they just don't get what we do. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the same is true of my of the job at Meta that I got after the Foreign Service. I don't think I remember multiple people in my family oh, sitting me down to be like, what so what did. do you do? You know, and I would explain what it was I did. But to be honest with you, I didn't always know what I did. It's pretty nebulous. I didn't always know either. Let's say I think we only have <laughs> one more question on the doc. And that is yeah, the list, the lastest one. What would you tell potential would be advice for to the Foreign Service? Uh, you said okay. aspirants? It, that's what it says. Why not? No, I know. I think, no, no, no. I'm not anti. I just, I have been listening very closely to our vocabulary on this episode. And yeah, recalcitrant, I remember hearing. I did say that. <laughs> I feel a little bad. I didn't, you know. I'm sorry, y'all. I do. I love a word, you know, and I will use them. Don't apologize. I, I love it. I did say it. Well, I'll get thesauruses, folks. I did say it. You did. <laughs> I love uh, it. It says, I love what it. would I tell potential aspirants the Foreign Service about a variety of things to consider? And I think the mm-hmm. only real thing you can give is advice because the Foreign Service is basically a commitment to giving up control over your life and career to a pretty significant extent. And I think the best thing to do when you're in a really chaotic environment or circumstance or just lifestyle, the most important thing to do is to know yourself really well and to prioritize your needs and really spend time and energy figuring out what it is you want and be really committed to driving that agenda forward because everyone and everything else in the institution will have a different agenda and will be pushing back against you trying to carve that path out. Uh, But at the end of the day, you're the one who you are responsible for and you're the one that you have to look after and preserve and protect and support. Uh, And as much as you, you know, have maybe good mentors or good bosses or even really positive jobs, you still have to look out for yourself, number one, and make sure you're getting what you want out of the career. So 
I think the most important thing is to just know that you are your own center and to really protect that center as much as possible. Balan, anything mm. to add there? No, because I don't know what to tell them people to do. I've never worked a job. I mean, I feel like that's great advice. I have a kind of a joke, shady kind of response based off of not only what you said, but I actually talked to my mom a little bit about all this stuff and like her career in comparison as an army vet consider joining the armed services you get better benefits (laughs) you'll make more money (laughs) when you get out of the beat you'll get preferential placement at some of these same agencies (laughs) you know what man that actually is really smart and and when people ask me about the foreign service irl my my first comment is you know the people who were second and third career in the foreign service were the happiest ones of the, everybody I interacted with. The people who were the least happy were the ones like me who started out as a diplomat because uh, you just come in making less. And I think also, you, like I said, you're in that prove yourself energy, which is a terrible thing to provide to an institution that will just grind your bones to make their bread. Uh, I think the second and third tour people took it less seriously, which is a smart way to go for longevity. And I think they were much more focused on like, yeah. oh, am I going to enjoy like this whole life at this job? Not like... Oh, am I going to like prove myself and get promoted? Like some of us younger people were really focused on the ambition side of it. And that's a great way to destroy your physical and mental health in a really short period of time. So yeah, man, if you're a second or career lawyer, so maybe military, definitely consider the foreign service. I do offer coaching services if you would like help getting through the process. That Come on this definitely- evening. <laughs> That is definitely a a very (laughs) viable and like fun thing to do for like five to 10 years. If you're just like, hey, I've been in the rat race. I would just like to vibe out and like learn a couple languages and have my kids have some overseas experience. Foreign service is not a bad way to do it. I think we need to also land. Yeah, we do. We're coming in for a landing. We're coming in for a landing. Okay. I was like, we got to land this plane now. (laughs) We will land it. We're landing it. Um, I guess I would just say any final thoughts on season one, Fallon? Anything to leave the listeners with? I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we're doing it. I like it as its own entity. I think that it is a good snapshot of what it is like, what it was like to be a 20-something figuring it out. I'm always going to advocate for the the universality of the story and like push people towards listening with curiosity and figuring out a way that it resonates with you, learning something new, kind of just like listening with that kind of open heart and open ear Um, because... I'm constantly surprised by how this story continues to unfold. So, yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. Uh, All right, y'all. Thank you so much for joining us. We have really enjoyed having you with us for season one. And I would just, I'm going to put out there again. If you have thoughts, questions, comments about this or really any international relations, you know, foreign policy question, topic, idea, please do send us an email at offdutydiplomat at gmail.com. And I will be happy to address it on a future episode. We're coming up with a list of like future bonus episodes now. So if you have something that's been burning or you read something in the New York Times or you saw something on TikTok and you're like, is that true? Is that real? Please do send me a message. I do not find that offensive or stupid. And actually, I just want to address something that did come up recently with a with a viewer who said that they didn't feel like they were smart enough to have an opinion on what we've been saying. And I just want to put out there like, I know, I know I'm using these $5 New York Times words, but please do not feel intimidated to 
be curious and ask questions. I think that's a thing I love about doing this is kind of just getting to meet everybody else where they are. Just because I have gone deep on this topic, you please mm-hmm. don't feel like you need to be an expert in order to have have questions. You know, we all have questions. I have questions about stuff. I'm still. not an expert. I don't know nothing. I do not think any less of you for not being a foreign policy expert as well. And I just want to say thank you so much for being interested in my life and my story. And If you haven't started season two or any of the Israel bonus episodes, please do check them out. Well, that's the end of our season one look back. I was perfectly serious when I said that we are open to suggestions for future episodes from you, the listeners. So please do send those to the email address, offdutydiplomat at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions or sort of any particular topics you'd love us to cover. And as always, thank you for listening. If you would like to support the show, you can do that on Patreon, or you can buy hats, mugs, t-shirts at TeePublic. If you are a current or former diplomat that would like to tell your story, you can email me at offdutydiplomat at gmail.com. Off-Duty Diplomat is an oral memoir of my career in the Foreign Service. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love a review. Thanks for listening.